We don't sing that psalm very often. Frankly, it's hard to sing some of those words, isn't it? Let sudden death upon him break. His office let another take. His children and his widowed wife pursue the homeless beggar's life. That's hard. That's also Revelation 6. As the saints who have been martyred cry out from beneath the altar and say, How long, O Lord, until you judge those who have destroyed us? And the Lord shows us through our text this morning that the time is coming. That Jesus was sent to work victory against the enemies who would destroy the people of God and rob God of His honor. That that victory has already been won, we know, but yet we still see the battle. And so we need to see how God fights the battle on our behalf. Look together with me at 1 Samuel chapter 17. Last time we looked at a portion of chapter 16, we saw how God revealed Jesus when He anointed David as the next king, the king after his own heart. Well, now we're going to see a bit more about David's life. Kids, this will be a very familiar passage to you. Beginning in the very start of 1 Samuel 17, we read, Now the Philistines gathered their army together to battle, and were gathered at Soko, which belongs in Judah. They encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together, and they encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in battle array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines, named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. Now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels. And a shield bearer went before him. Then he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you not come out? Or why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. And let him come down to me, and if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. The names of the three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with a keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he went to the camp 
as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then he talked with them. There, then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. And he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy, defy the armies of the living God. And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, Why did you come down here? And, whom have, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. Now when the words which David spoke were heard, they reported them to Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight against the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you are a youth and he a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with a coat of mail. David fastened his sword to his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these, for I have not tested them. So David took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, in a pouch which he had. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. So the Philistine came and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore his shield went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was only a youth, ruddy and good-looking. So the Philistine said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcass, 
the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. So it was when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, that David hurried and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead, so that the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sha'arim, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. When Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, Inquire whose son the young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Amen. Beloved servants of God through Jesus, his son. This text is a favorite for so many reasons. From a literary standpoint, it is a masterpiece. Vivid character descriptions lead us from the very start to care about the events. Dramatic tension is built up and then just slightly relieved and built up and then just slightly relieved until finally we come to the climax of the story. It is a literary masterpiece, but it also is a favorite simply because of the story. Children love this story because they so often feel like they can put their feet right in David's sandals. One who is so underestimated, so scorned and ignored. And yet God uses him in his youth, in his smallness, to to bring a victory, an unheard of victory for Israel. Kids love the story for that reason. And there's no denying that this is an excellent story. But we must never forget that it is not merely a story. It is the historical account of David, the young man after God's own heart, whom the Lord had anointed king. It is the account of Israel who were harassed by the enemies of God who sought their, their extinction. It is a memorial to God's honor, which ought to take priority in the heart of God's people. And above all, it is the story of Christ, who is the true Savior, who delivered us from all our enemies. This story then, it's not just a literary masterpiece. It's not just a good bedtime story for the kids. This is the revelation of our hope. So join me in considering for our few moments together this morning. How David's first battle 
reveals Israel's ultimate Savior. That's our theme. David's first battle reveals Israel's ultimate Savior. But before we see the Savior, we see Israel's undefeated enemy. And that's our first point. Israel is fighting Philistia. The Philistines, <coughs> if, you, if you picture the promised land, it's got water on both sides. If you're looking at the map, here's the Mediterranean Sea, the Jordan River. That kind of marks the east and the west of the land. Well, over by the Mediterranean Sea, down in the bottom corner, that's where Philistia was located. They were a, a seafaring people initially who came into the land and conquered a bunch of the, the Canaanites along the shore. Really rich, fertile land. Really the, the pick of the land in some ways. And they settled there before Israel entered the land. And they had begun to push into the land, evidently seeking to take over all of Palestine. And they weren't going to let these new people, the Israelites, stop them from doing that. And so they, they became a, a thorn in the side of Israel pretty much from the start. And it was a substantial enemy that they fought. They were well organized. They were fearless. They had strong weaponry. But they also had a special weapon whose name was Goliath. Goliath was from Gath, one of the five principal Philistine cities. And he was altogether impressive. He's called a champion. That's a fascinating word. It literally means the man between two, which refers to armies. In other words, he's the advance guard. He's the special forces unit all by himself. He's the one they would send out to intimidate the enemy and to create a path right through the middle of them. Or to do what he was doing this day. Before we get to that, notice why he was so terrifying. He's described as being six cubits and a span. Put that in our measurements He's nine and a half feet tall. Now, of course, the liberal scholars doubt that testimony. No way he could have been that big. But remember, Goliath was descended from the Anakim. If you go back in, in the history of the Exodus and the time in the wilderness, you remember G, that uh, Moses sent spies to spy out the land. And when they came back, they said, it's a rich land. It's filled with abundance. But the Anakim live there. They're giants. We were grasshoppers in their eyes. And that's who Goliath descended from, the Anakim. He was abnormally large. And that's evident from the armor that he wore. This was an age when most of the Israelites didn't even wear armor. But Goliath had a helmet made out of bronze. He had a coat of mail, that's woven metal, that weighed... 5,000 shekels. We'll get to that in a minute. And, and he had bronze on his legs to protect his legs from the sword. His armor alone weighed somewhere between, depending on whose shekel we're using, somewhere between 120 and 150 pounds. Just the armor. He had a shield in addition to that carried by another man. And then his weaponry. He had a sword, which we learn elsewhere was an excellent and substantially sized sword. He had a javelin made of bronze. That's like a spear that you throw. And then he had a spear, the shaft of which was two to two and a half inches around. That's like a baseball bat. On the end of it was a, a, a head of, of iron weighing somewhere around 18, 20 pounds. Imagine that. 
This guy could throw a spear as big around as a baseball bat with a 20-pound weight on the end. Imagine that he could throw that. And he comes onto the field in gleaming bronze, the sun shining off of him. This is a a living, moving, hate-filled tank. But remember our context. Why was it that King Saul was so impressive, so pleasing to the people of Israel? Was it not because, according to 1 Samuel 10, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward? They looked on him and they said, there's the man to be our king. He's the biggest one among Israel. He is so impressive. But see, that's the problem. When we trust in anything other than God. When we trust in the guy who's the biggest, there'll always be somebody bigger. When we trust in the guy who's the smartest, there'll always be somebody smarter. There'll always be somebody richer, somebody more influential, somebody more likable, somebody whatever. Whenever you rely on anything but God, there will always be someone who can top you. For every Saul, there's a Goliath. But of course, Goliath doesn't just stand there looking impressive. He comes out and issues a challenge. You see, warfare is a work of ultimately of attrition. It's a question of who can last the longest while you kill each other. Well, Goliath comes out and he has a proposition for him. Let's not kill each other. You pick one person, your choice, doesn't matter who it is. He comes out and he fights against me, just the two of us. If he wins, we become your slaves. But if I win, you become my slaves. Now this is a lose-lose proposition for Israel. Because first of all, Saul's their biggest guy. And as we'll see in a minute, Saul's shaking in his boots. They have no one who can challenge this gigantic mountain of a man. But the other side of the proposition is they refuse And it demoralizes them. All of Israel could not produce one man who was willing to fight a single Philistine. How demoralizing that is. They don't don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in their weapons. Worse, they don't believe in their God. And notice verse 10. Key word in Goliath's speech is the word defy. That word has a sense not merely of challenging, but of mocking, of scorning. Goliath, he's mocking, he's scorning, but not merely Israel. He's scorning the people who serve the living God. You see, this isn't just a challenge against the people who stand before him. This is a challenge of gods. They serve different gods. Philistia serves Dagon and also a couple other gods. Israel serves Yahweh and no other gods. So the question isn't just whose army is bigger, whose people are more skillful, it's whose God is real. Well, surely the people of Israel hearing that challenge must have been filled with righteous indignation, right? Surely. But no. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were dismayed. That's the word, by the way, that you would use to describe what happens to a piece of fine pottery that you accidentally drop on the pavement. They were shattered. They were broken. They were utterly and completely undone in their hearts. Now make no mistake, this response was completely sinful. Listen. Listen to what God promised His people when He was bringing them into the land. 
Deuteronomy 7, verse 22. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And He will deliver their kings into your hand, and you will destroy their name from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. And that promise is repeated time and time and time again. Don't fear them. When you see their armies, when you see their horses, when you see their chariots, don't be afraid. God will fight for you against them. God will be your strength. All you must do is trust. Their answer, when they heard Goliath's words, should have been the the confession of Psalm 46. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. He's the one who will fight the battle for us. But no. They look to Saul, their biggest guy. He's standing there trembling. And they said, we are lost. Faithless. Rejection of the true God. Folks, isn't that what the church does? When it trembles before the power and the influence of mere men? Isn't that what the church does? When we refuse to confront someone in their sin because we're afraid of what their reaction might be or that they might leave. Or when... We're tempted to maybe stop church discipline because a member under discipline threatens a lawsuit. Or when we stop talking about abortion because someone threatens that our tax-exempt status might be taken. Or, Or when we think about changing our worship so that we can appeal to more people outside of the church. Or when we maybe stop talking about the creation account or the flood or the destruction of Jericho because the scientists say that that's just not believable. See, the challenge here is not merely a military challenge that faced Israel. It was, it was a test of faith. We face those tests of faith all the time. And we must not respond the way Israel did because for 40 days running, they lost that battle hands down. But then we're introduced to another warrior who isn't a warrior at all. In fact, in the eyes of most folks, he's exactly the opposite. There's a warrior and then there's, you know, a shepherd. But in this young shepherd, David, we meet Israel's unlikely deliverer. Now, it's a little strange that we're reintroduced to David here. We already met him, and we're introduced to him before we even get through all the meat of the Goliath account. But but you see, this is a literary masterpiece. Because we've just met Goliath, and we see how impressive he is. But he's impressive because of his bigness, right? Because he's so large and he carries so much weaponry and he's so invincible. So now we have to see the other primary character and see what makes him stand out. And it's not his size, it's not his strength, it's not his weapons. It's simply this, that he is a child of God. A child of the covenant. He is from the tribe of Judah. The son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He is a child of God who serves the Lord faithfully and obeys his father. That's who David is. That's what sets him apart. Goliath arrives with great fanfare, the mighty champion of Philistia. David arrives with no fanfare at all. He's on an errand from his father. He's a gopher. Go for this, go for that. Bring some food to your brothers. And yet nothing is accidental in the sight of God. David arrives at the field of battle just in time to hear Goliath speak his words of defiance. 
to see the trembling of the soldiers of Israel, to wonder that no one has answered this evil man. And notice how David responds. He, he doesn't just shake his head. He doesn't turn away. No, he starts talking to people. Verse 26 shows he starts discussing among his fellow Israelites, not just the reward that the king would give to the one who stands before Goliath. He, he hears that from everybody, but he wants to talk about What's actually happening here? This man has defied, he has scorned the armies of the living God. That's, that's an offense against God himself. And from whom? This uncircumcised Philistine, David says. You see, David recognizes the heart of the matter. It's not a physical threat, it's a covenantal threat. It's not a, a warfare threat. It's a threat of faith. Israel is holy. The people chosen by the living God in defying them... Goliath was mocking the God to whom they belonged. That deeply offended David. It should have offended all of them. And so David's going to remove that dishonor from God and from Israel. But first he's got to face three enemies to do it. And only one of them is Goliath. The first enemy is his own brother. Eliab comes up to him and, and we read those words that Eliab speaks. And, and it's tempting to dismiss that as just the mockery of an older brother, isn't it? I mean, even David's response, what have I done now? But understand, Eliab, he's a mirror. In chapter 16, he was a mirror of Saul, the big, impressive guy that you would expect to be king. Here, here he's a mirror of Goliath. He questions David's presence, making out like he's a meddler. He belittles David's work, making it seem weak and pitiable. He even slanders the attitudes of David's heart as though he could read his heart. See, Satan's using Eliab to silence God's young servant and to discourage him. But David's not about to be silenced or discouraged. He doesn't fear men, and he will not be stopped from defending the honor of God. So soon enough, word of David's words is brought to Saul, and then David is brought. And breaking every protocol that has ever existed before kings, David, rather than waiting until he is spoken to, rushes in and says to the king, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight, for, fight against this Philistine. That's bold. And one might pardon Saul for dismissing it as the rashness of a teenager. He points out how inexperienced David is, and conversely how great is the experience of Goliath. And that shows that this is David's second enemy, his own king. Eliab spoke the scorn of Goliath. Now Saul speaks the mind of Goliath. Focusing on David's youth, on his inexperience, on his skill. You don't have the ability to stand against a soldier like that. You don't have the training. You don't have the understanding. You can't do it. Saul's showing his heart here. He depends on man. He depends upon the flesh. And only the flesh. But David won't be dismissed based on the standards of the flesh. He tells Saul, listen, I'm, I'm a shepherd. And when something steals one of my lambs, I fight for it. I don't care that it's a lion. I don't care that it's a bear. Some of you men that are hunters probably read that with your jaw in your lap. I don't really want to go against a bear or a lion with my shotgun. He went against them with Stones and sticks. And he promises that he has already killed 
lions and bears. And this goon from Gath is going to be just like one of them, only he's worse. Because when a lion steals one of your lambs, he's just doing what comes natural, what he was designed to do. But Goliath was designed to worship the Lord, and instead he is defying God and his army. And therefore he, David, the servant of God, will defeat Goliath. That's faith. But sadly, Saul is not done. He gives David his blessing, but, but also gives him his honor. Now, it's been said this is the great temptation for David in this passage, and I believe it is. Because Saul gives him his blessing, but he's still resting in the faith. So he says, okay, shepherd boy, if you're going to go against Goliath, you've got to become a soldier. Here's a helmet. Here's a coat of mail. Here's a big sword. And for a minute, David submits. He puts them all on. He realizes how heavy they are. How they limit his movement. How he's not trained for them. But most of all, how they're not him. Oh, one day they will be. One day he will become a soldier. But he's a shepherd. And he's not going into this battle as a soldier. He's going into the battle as a shepherd who trusts the Lord. And so he puts off the armor. And he goes his way as a shepherd. Now listen. Two things we need to see in this section. One, David is a beautiful example for us. We can't so spiritualize this text that we overlook the example that David gives us here. Because so often we do get so focused on ourselves, on my well-being, my safety, my future, my strength, that we don't stop to think about how God wants us to trust Him and love others. That's what David does. He puts his own safety, his own well-being, his own future out of the picture. For the sake of the people of God, and even more than that, for the sake of the honor of God. Because David saw God was Goliath's true victim. God whose power was being scorned. God whose glory was being trampled in the dust. Hearing that, David knew that neither silence nor safety was an option. The people of God must put the honor of God first, or they're not truly the people of God. Never forget... How David refused to be deterred in his resolve to honor God. He refused to be deterred by his brother and his scorn and mockery. He refused to be deterred by the naysaying king. Because David kept his heart on God. On his honor, his strength, his sovereignty. This is an example we must boldly follow. Children, never fear. Young people... Never fear to defend the honor of your God. It doesn't matter who's speaking against Him, who's mocking Him, who's scorning Him, or what scorn and punishment they heap upon you. You stand on the side of God no matter what. Nothing is more important. Because if you don't stand with God, if you don't speak up and confess Him, you're no better than Saul. And you're showing that you're not one of the people of God and that you do not believe... uh, Possess His promises. So by all means, pay attention to the example of David, but that's not the main thing in this, in this text. The main thing is Jesus. David was meant to be an image of the Son of God. I mean, look at him. He's a son of the covenant, unimpressive in the eyes of men. But he's an obedient son. He does what his father tells him, and he does so humbly. Average in the sight of men. No one takes a second glance at David. 
but beloved by the Lord. Like David, Jesus was compassionate toward those filled with fear in this life. He understood it's a scary world. The things that threaten us in this world are terrifying. He had no fear, but he had sympathy for those who feared. And yet, like Jesus or like David, Jesus' concern was above all for the honor of God. That's why he spoke such sharp words to the Pharisees and to the scribes. They dishonored God by twisting his word. They sought honor for themselves at God's expense. So Jesus rebuked them. He opposed them. He called men to fear God instead of them. And Jesus was always resolved to do God's will, wasn't he? Even when it put him at odds with the people who were in power. Even when they slandered him, mocked him, threatened him. Even when it led him to the most horrendous death we can imagine. He obeyed. He submitted. He honored God. If you would see nothing else in this text, you must see the devotion of Jesus, His commitment to the Lord our God, revealed through Israel's unlikely deliverer. Now, we have one more thing to see here. It was a long text. I apologize. It took quite a while to read, but we can't stop here because we're right on the cusp of the climax where we see Israel's unqualified conquest look at verse 40 he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag in a pouch which he had and his sling in his hand David went forth as a shepherd now a few words about what he carried with him he took his staff that's not a weapon the shepherds often carried a rod that was a staff that was Basically a baseball bat, a short, stout rod that they could use to defend the sheep. But the staff, it was long, it was slender, it was used for guiding the sheep and inspecting them in the midst of their their thick wool and counting them. The staff was not a weapon, it was an insult. It was an insult, first of all, quietly to the army of Israel who were letting themselves be represented by a shepherd, not even by a, by a rookie soldier, no, by a shepherd boy. But it was an even greater insult against Goliath, the great champion of Philistia, who would be opposed by what? By not just a young man, but by a shepherd? But on the other hand, the sling was in fact a weapon. The stones he picked up, We know where this all happened. The stones would have been two to three inches in diameter. And those slings was basically a a long strip of leather with a, a loop on each end, a little bit wider in the middle to form a pouch. One skilled with a sling could whip one of those two or three inch stones at upwards of 100 miles an hour with a good degree of accuracy. So this was a substantial weapon, but nonetheless... It looked weak in the eyes of men. It it was not the vision of a mighty warrior that David cast. And Goliath took offense at that. Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Even so, he invites the young man to come, curses him in the name of his gods, warned David that David's about to die. Hard words from a big man. But David speaks too. First, he points out that he and Goliath are relying on different sources of strength. Goliath 
He trusted his weapons, his sword, his spear, his javelin. But David, he trusted in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And David expresses his confidence this day. The Lord will deliver you, plural. He's not just talking to Goliath anymore. The Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. David had absolutely no doubt. Goliath is about to meet his end and so is the army behind him. Because he is weak, but God is infinitely strong. And as this victory came about, two lessons would be seen. First of all, he says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel because this victory won't be kept in the valley of Elah. No, all of Philistia, all of Israel, they will all hear of it. And through them, the Ammonites, the Moabites, they will hear of it. And the word will will spread. What an amazing victory God has wrought through such an unlikely servant. And more than that, all this assembly, he's talking about Israel, the cowards who quaked before Goliath for 40 days, all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. What a powerful confession of faith. A confession that reflected the mighty confession of Jesus himself who stood one day before Pilate silent refusing to answer the charges against him and Pilate admonished him how dare you stay silent before me do you not know that your very life is in my hand and Jesus answered what you could have no power against me unless it had been given you from above you're not in control Pilate Neither are the Pharisees, neither are the chief priests. It is God who reigns over all. God is the one who determines the outcome of the battle. And God will give the victory. And so the battle began. Goliath approaching David, coming forward at a run. I wonder how many soldiers missed the heart of the battle. Never expecting the end to come so soon. David ran, pulled out his sling, whipped it above his head. And with a... A sudden whoosh of air and a thud of flesh, Goliath fell. The great champion of Philistia fallen in the dust with one blow. The army of Israel is immediately energized. Their faith immediately strengthened. They took off after the Philistines across the valley. And the Philistines didn't wait for him to come. They took off running. Absolutely terrified now that they had seen their great champion fall. Never having thought that they would have to raise their sword against Israel. And they chased them. They chased them north to Gath. And west to Ekron. Where the Philistines fled seeking to take shelter behind the walls of the city. And they chased them their slain falling on every side the people of Israel taking vengeance on behalf of the honor of the Lord and then turning back and plundering the camp of its weapons of its provisions of its clothing of its all but interestingly David didn't join them in their plunder 
He had other matters to attend to. First, going to Saul, who wanted to know who his family was, who his father was, that he could free them from taxation in Israel. But then David does something that I never understood. He takes the head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Now, I never understood that because Jerusalem wasn't yet theirs. David is the one who would conquer the Jebusites who lived there in the midst of the land. But he wouldn't do that for years to come. But you see, that's the point. God commanded them never to let the enemies of God live among them. It would be a mixed marriage of sorts. They'd always be leading them into temptation, into godlessness. And yet there, hundreds of years after they had entered the land, there stood this outpost of the Jebusites right in their midst. Just a relatively brief walk from Bethlehem, in fact. And so David took the head of Goliath as a message to the Jebusites. This is what happened to the greatest man in Philistia, and this is what will happen to you if you do not leave. And it was a message to Israel, too. God did this. God won the victory. And if God won the victory over Goliath of Gath, then surely these Jebusites are nothing in his sight. Again, my friends, an example for us to follow. Not cutting the heads off of our enemies by any means, but but trusting in the Lord to win our battles and encouraging each other to fight those battles with confidence. We heard in Ephesians 6, our primary battles are not flesh and blood. Our battles are against the powers and the principalities of this dark age. Our battles are against the temptations that Satan would set before us to be silent about the name of our Lord. To act just like the people around us so that we'd blend in. To refuse to confess our hope, our trust, our joy in the Lord when we get beyond the walls of this church. To simply give in to the the desires of the flesh. That's our temptation. That's what Satan wants of us. But the victory has already been won. All we must do is follow the example of David by, by trusting the Lord to win. And by giving no credence, no account to the enemies who say, you'll ruin your career, you'll lose your friendships. You'll... No. We trust the Lord and we follow His commands. Why? Because of the one greater than David. Jesus came and he fought a a trio of enemies. Satan and sin and death itself. Any one of which would have made Goliath look like an infant. And Jesus fought them all at once. It was Satan who tormented him on the cross. It was sin, our sin, which put him there. And against which he had fought from the very start. And death, death was hounding him, seeking constantly to destroy him. But Jesus didn't fight those enemies conventionally, using the strength and the weapons of the flesh. No, Jesus employed the weapons which the world decried as weakness. He he, he wielded the weapon of trust in his heavenly Father. Submission to God. He wielded the weapon of love and servanthood and weakness. And just as David pulled forth the sword of Goliath and used it to bring a final end to that that, uh, soldier, so Jesus took that weapon that was used to destroy him, the cross, 
And he employed it to win the ultimate victory over Satan and over sin and over death itself. And because he did, brothers and sisters, it doesn't matter what enemy stands against you, what threats they level. It doesn't matter how strong the temptation or how weak you feel. The victory has already been won. All you must do is stand forth. All you must do is confess the Lord. All you must do is what Israel did. Chase after an enemy that's already running and plunder his camp. That's what you do. When you confess your sin and your weakness to some brother or sister close to you and you ask for accountability so that, so that sin will have no more power over you in your aloneness. That's what you do. You plunder the camp of the enemy. When you go to your, your brother or sister in the church and you confront them over their sin and you urge them, to turn back to the Lord and you promise that you'll walk alongside of them. That's what you do. You plunder the camp of Satan. When you tell your friends, your co-workers, your children, your, your relatives about the misery that their sin brings them, but about the freedom and the joy and the life that is available in Christ. We are called to, to fight against and to plunder the enemy, but we can do it only as we rest in Jesus and in His unqualified conquest. Dear people of God, there is victory for us in Christ, but we must follow the example of Jesus to receive it, or of David to receive it. Not looking to the, the strength of men, not looking to the opinions of men, but, but trusting only and always in the Lord and seeking always His honor. To Him be all the glory. Amen. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You and You alone are the one who delivers us. It is Your strength that defends us and guides us each day. And Father, we pray that You would strengthen our faith, that like David of old, we, we might care for nothing more than Your honor and Your love. We might fight the fight with confidence in You, and we might bring forth glory to Your, You, strengthening the saints as we demonstrate that we have no doubt in your omnipotent power. Lord, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.